Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you uh, for a new day, another day of life, Lord God. We thank you that you are a God who makes and keeps covenant. We thank you that the covenant that we are under is mediated through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his blood shed on our behalf. Father God, we uh, begin this Lord's Day, and and we come and we ask that you would forgive our sins, that you would um, wipe them away because of your Son, Jesus, for our good and for your glory. And we pray that the things that we explore uh, would allow us to draw closer to you, and that everything that we say and do um, in this place would be an expression of worship to you, whether it be fellowshipping with the brethren, lifting our voices in song to you, exalting your word, may it all be worship acceptable to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Malachi, week two. Uh, There should be some additional copies of handouts for those of you who were not with us um, last week. We do have um, the same work, worksheet, the handout, for you to doodle on for, throughout the duration of the study. And this week we'll be beginning to look at charge number two, the second of the, the allegations that God raises against his people. We won't go through um, the entirety of the text. Uh, here on your outline it says that we're going through chapter 2, verse 9, but we won't be making it um, quite that far. We want to uh, give this text a chance to work in our lives, and for us to learn from it. This morning, um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that this won't just be teaching, but also preaching. The text requires that. And uh, I know I have been preached to this week through this text. So let's look at it together. Um, I'm going to invite you guys just to stand for the first read-through, just uh, reverence uh, to the Lord. I'm going to read from verse 6 through the End of chapter 1. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that its food may be despised. But you say, What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Malachi chapter 1. You may have a seat. The uh, title of this series is A Call to Covenant. And the term covenant is somewhat devoid from our vocabulary in modern times. But yet, covenant in its most simple form could be looked at as a contract. Since coming back to California, I've signed a couple of different contracts. And uh, it's interesting how a contract works. A contract will name the parties that are entering into the agreement. And it doesn't do that by name. It'll say the borrower and the lender, the employer and the employee. And as we look at this call to covenant, the first thing that we must do in uh, verse 6 here is recognize in the second charge who this covenant is between. Who are the parties in this covenant? Once we understand who's involved in the covenant, then we understand the terms and conditions and the consequences of failing to meet those terms and conditions, and then a way in which we can put this contract back on course should it deviate from its course. This applies to any human contract, but it certainly applies to the covenants that we see. Again, Malachi has uh, introduced it to you last week as a, as a crossroads between the old covenants with Abraham and Moses and Levi and the new covenant, the better covenant made and effectuated through Christ Jesus. So this particular charge is spoken through Malachi, which means God's messenger. And it is God calling his people to understand and reevaluate the covenant that he has with them. And he begins by making this statement, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. This uh, calling attention to who's involved in the contract is really, really important. And it's really rich. One of the reasons that... Um, that I love this text is because it allows us to see clearly the heart of God. It allows us to understand his holiness and how he set apart. The first thing he says is, a son honors his father. What an interesting statement. And looking at how um, God refers to himself throughout uh, scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, we see God identifying himself as a father. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 9, where we know that a new covenant is pointed towards, he refers to himself as the father of Israel. But yet, interestingly enough, the term father is seen much more to refer to God in the New Testament. If then I am father, where is my honor? Hold that thought on a son honoring his father. And then he says, and his servant, his master. Now, the, the idea of master is the word Adonai, or Lord. And we see that used throughout the Old Testament. More often, God refers to himself or is referred to as Lord than as father. But yet, if we were to look at our own prayer lives for just a moment, isn't it much easier to pray Father God than it is to pray Lord God? And if we were to substitute the word Lord for master, it would really be a tough one. Master God, right? But that's his title. As he's laying out this contract to us, he's establishing that not only is he our father, but he's also our Lord and our, and our master. It's uh, interesting 
when we're in a uh, relationship, we oftentimes need to be reminded of our relationship, which part of the bargain we're in, and which part God is in. I have a, a young man who I've been um, involved in his life for years in Honduras, and uh, he does not have a, a father, and so on occasion he'll refer to me as uh, Papa, which is interesting. What I've noticed is most of the time it's Hermano Mateo, but when he needs something or wants something, it's Papa. <laughs> and I, I think that's a rather interesting statement. How often is that our case when we draw near to the Lord wanting to implore him to recognize the covenant relationship that he has with us? And God is saying clearly in this text, as we'll d- dive into it, that if we want that right of going to him as Abba Father, we must subsequently give him the honor that is due him, being our father. If then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? This concept of, of lordship, this concept of God being the Lord of Israel, there goes along with that a connotation of respect and reverence that was lacking. For that reason, the, the tail end of this verse 6 says and introduces an unusual title, the Lord of hosts. If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O you priests who despise my name. Now, uh, some of you who might have the ESV study Bible, I don't know uh, who has one. Anyone? Good. Great. There's a little table down at the bottom, right, that shows us the, the frequency with which the term Lord of hosts appears in other books of the Bible. I love Isaiah, and Isaiah is full of that terminology, the Lord of hosts. One of the first times where we see that so vividly is in um, 2 Kings chapter 6. While the title itself doesn't appear there, what we do have is Elisha being threatened by the, the armies of Syria, and his servant comes to him and says, uh, we got company. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. And as he looks and observes, he sees chariots of fire and angels encamped all around him. And Elisha prays and says, open the eyes of my servant. And the servant is able to see supernaturally these hosts, these armies. Elisha has more than enough manpower to fend off these armies. That term, Lord of hosts, is used with a bit of irony at this time, right? Remember, we're, we're coming back out of exile. We're going back into this little county, this little province of Judea. The people of Israel have no defense, practically speaking. Their existence is based largely on, on being given the ability to, to give taxes back to the Persian king. They have no hosts. They have no army. So God rightfully says, this is a covenant relationship. I am your God, and honor me as such. This portion of of the call to covenant is about worship. It's about worship and, and reverence for our God, the Lord of hosts. I would encourage you, uh, for those of you who are into underlining, as we go through the book of Malachi, continue to, to look for words that repeat and, and ideas that repeat and underline where you see the Lord of hosts. This is a rich, rich title. It actually only appears twice in the New Testament, once in the book of James and once in the book of Romans, and both are nods back to the prophet Isaiah. 
for the people of Israel, this would have been a consolation. Nonetheless, the rest of this text that we're looking at is not much of a consolation. They have violated their contract. How have they violated their contract? Let's look and see. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But when you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Before I delve into the sacrifice thing, which is hard for us as new covenant believers to understand, I would like to help us make a, just a bit of application. What God is talking about here is this worship that is due him. Why is it that we are called to worship? We're called to worship because we need to recognize where God fits in to our lives and to our worship. When we come to the Lord's house, when we come to worship in the morning, we ultimately need to remember why we are coming and, and not why, but for whom we are coming. Why is it that we are here? We are here to worship our God, our Lord, and our Father. What's that worship look like? Well, under the Old Covenant, it was about bringing a sacrifice. And since this is directed to the priests, and we are that New Covenant royal priesthood, there are sacrifices to be brought. I mentioned, uh, I think last week, one of the reasons that I picked this book is because it was easier than Leviticus. In a bit of irony, I was forced to go and read Leviticus this week to prepare the message. Um, Leviticus chapter 22, if you go there with me just briefly, we won't read all of it, but from verses 17 through 33, we see God through Moses laying out what is an acceptable sacrifice. And he talks about peace offerings and vow offerings and different kinds of of, uh, animal sacrifice. But what he does say is really clear If you look at verse 19 of Leviticus chapter 22, it says, If it is to be accepted, for you it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a free will offering from the herd or the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having any discharge or an itch or scabs shall not offer to the Lord or give to them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. The stipulations are really clear, hard for us to understand, and perhaps even a, a bit comical because we don't get this, right? But all four legs have to be the same length. The animal must be able to see. The animal must be a male. And there's all these prerequisites. Why? Because God desires the best of what we have. That's the point of it. That's the point of it. God wants the best of what we have. So what's the problem? In this covenant that we see back in Malachi chapter 1, the people are not giving the best of what they have. They're giving second best? Maybe not even, maybe not even that. They're giving the leftovers. This is an offense to God. Verse 7 says, By offering polluted food on my table, 
But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? This is a powerful statement. And the term governor here is really interesting. This serves as a, as a temporal marker. The um, Persians, after the decree of Cyrus, allowed the people to go back to their countries of origin and s- sort of repopulate, re-civilize, right? And again, it wasn't benevolence. It was part of a political agenda. They sent them back so that they could generate wealth and give those as taxes to the Persian Empire. And part of that, that structure was that they would have a, a provincial governor. The term governor actually only appears in the post-exilic books of the Bible where the Persians had placed their administrators in charge. And so God is saying, okay, you guys have to pay taxes to the Persians. Try giving them your second best. Try giving them your leftovers, and let's find out how that goes for you. The Persians will come down hard on you, right? Try cheating on your taxes. The IRS shows up, right? <laughs> try, try giving second best quality work to your boss. How long are you going to have the job? Right? But don't we do that with the Lord? Sometimes coming to church is a little parenthesis in our weekend recreation. Oops, I'm preaching. <laughs> preaching to me. Sometimes, instead of the, the Sunday being viewed as the, the beginning of the week, the beginning of all that it is that we're going to be doing as a spiritual act of worship to God throughout the week, it's just a little parenthesis that we have to get out of the way. Sometimes our giving is that way. But God's people ought not be stingy. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? This is an interesting statement. God says, you want all the benefits of the covenant. You want all of the you want me to honor my end of the deal, you come with, hey, Father God. But you don't want to hold up your end of the deal. How's that going to work out for you? I uh, heard from the Delgado family that they were shared with a, a documentary from John and Roxy about uh, the prosperity gospel. So just to be clear, we're not going to introduce any prosperity gospel from this text, right? But what is clear is if we want to wear that letterman's jacket that I mentioned last week, right, that blessing from the Lord, if we want to be identified as God's people and see that blessing, there is something that he expects from us, right? And it's not give that you receive blessing, but certainly don't show up and ask God for things without first rendering to him what is due his. That's the best of what we have, not what's left over. Verse 10 is uh, perhaps one of the most poignant remarks of this text to me, and it's, it's so powerful. It says, Oh, that you, there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So our context, we just rebuilt Temple 2.0. 
right? The people came out of captivity. They've been allowed to come back. We've got Ezra. We've got Nehemiah. We've rebuilt the temple. And what joy! We can go to God's house and worship him. For the first time in generations, they have access to a temple. They have access to go to a place where they ought to have expected sincere worship to the Lord. And instead, what does God say? Wouldn't it be nice if somebody would just shut this place down? How incredible. Before I comment on that any further, I'd invite you to go back to Isaiah chapter 1 with me. Because this accusation, this failure to keep covenant, is a chilling bit of deja vu for the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, we're talking about 300 years earlier. The first temple hasn't been destroyed, right? So we're talking about the glory of Solomon's temple. And God says to his people, would you stop showing up? Chapter 1, I'll start at verse 9. God through Isaiah says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give, teach, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash them yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. That text, God says, I'm tired of your religious assemblies. I'm tired of you guys coming and offering all these sacrifices. You know what? When you pray, I have my ears covered. When you guys spread out your hands before me, I've got my eyes closed. I can't stand it. And here God is again in the book of Malachi repeating this same message. We've got another generation of Israelites, a second temple, and the same problem. Insincere worship. It's not that they weren't giving an offering. It's that they were giving substandard offerings. And they weren't doing it with a sincerity of heart. What a warning for us. What a warning for us. This cycle repeats itself. Verse 10 again, Malachi chapter 1. Oh, that there are one among you who would shut the doors, that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. In uh, my opportunities to travel, I've had a chance to go to uh, Germany. And Germany is a, a fascinating place. Of course, it's the place of, uh, of rich history. You've got history, World War II, and you've got history all the way back to the Reformation. And one of the things that I found the most interesting walking around Berlin was these beautiful old Lutheran churches. And these old Lutheran churches, of course, have, you know, just 
the echoes of what was done through the Protestant Reformation and just a, a rich history. Yet, if you go through most of Berlin and you find an old church like that, it's been converted into a coffee shop or a bar or a nightclub. In fact, some of you who have been around Christian culture for a while might know Steve Taylor. He's a Christian musician, uh, wrote a lot of the lyrics for the Newsboys, and he has a, a song called, This Disco Used to Be a Cute Cathedral. And it's a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek reference to all of these old churches that have now been converted into nightclubs. And, and the, the thought as I walked around was, wow, how sad. All these places that used to be used to worship God and to preach his word have now become nightclubs. But if we look at this text, could it be that God is no less displeased by dead churches that continue to go every week and don't preach the word and just turn into social clubs? Maybe it would be a relief to him to have these churches shut down and turned into nightclubs. That's what we see. Shut the doors, guys. Stop burning these, these offerings, this incense. It's an offense to me. It's not worship. That one must have been hard to hear for the priests as they're trying to, to establish this temple yet again. And they, they wanted to understand God's presence. And God says, no, your offering, your worship is insincere. So what is it then that God does want? This is where verse 11 shines through and brings some joy in the midst of this heaviness. Verse 11 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is pointing to the new covenant. Right? He's, he's, he's not a, pointed them back to Leviticus, and they know what kind of animals they're supposed to sacrifice, but now he's pointing to the new covenant. I'm not interested in your worship just coming to church. I'm interested in a global worship. A church comprised of those who have been redeemed and can offer worship. There's a couple of texts I wanted to look at with you in the New Testament with regards to this fulfillment that we'll see. Malachi is pointing ahead to the, to the new covenant and he talks about this idea of incense being offered everywhere to his name. What does that look like? In the New Testament, we don't have any incense burners here uh, at Pacific Hope. I, I don't think we've, there might be a candle in Pastor John's office, but I don't think it has any real significance there. It's, yeah, just for, the, just for the aroma, right? Yeah. What is this idea of incense? So uh, could, you, uh, um, could you go ahead one slide? So this idea of incense is something that throughout Scripture we, we see. In the Old Testament, we'll learn a lot about this idea of, of frankincense, right? It's like a sap from a tree, and it would be burned, and it might have smelled a little something like eucalyptus, and it would be used in the temple to both purify and also as a, as a worship offering to the Lord. In the New Testament, we see that this idea of incense has changed a bit. It comes up in the book of uh, Revelation, and the, the description... Could somebody read um, for us, please, Revelation 5, 8, nice and loud? When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, 
the prayers of the saints, this incense, this which God desires from his new covenant people, are the prayers of his people. Another ex- interesting example of this new covenant act of worship with, with regards to incense is found in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, Paul is discussing his work as an as a ambassador of the new covenant, going and, and teaching and preaching, and he describes a fragrant offering on, the, on behalf of, of God's people. Here's what he says. I'll start at verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, help, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment, and more, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What an interesting thing there, that part of our spiritual act of worship, as Paul describes it here, is part of generosity towards missions. There's a missions meeting this week, um, I believe after, after service, after some of the fellowship time, and what an interesting statement that Paul makes that this offering that he received while he was going about doing gospel work was a fragrant offering to the Lord Jesus. So in this incense, the prayers of the saints, the offering towards missions. The, the next text I want to look at with you is in the, the book of Romans. How many of you did your homework this week? What were the chapters in Romans? 9, 10, 11, right? So some of us did our homework, good. Well, we're in Romans chapter 15 uh, for this uh, quick example looking at an acceptable offering for the new covenant people of God. Romans 15, starting at verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The offering of the Gentiles. If you look around and you do a little bit of study on this, it's like, well, wait, what are the Gentiles offering? No, no, no. The Gentiles are the offering. They are the offering. Paul is saying that he's doing this priestly service What an interesting nod back to Malachi chapter 1, right? Paul is doing a priestly service. Was he a priest? A priest of the Most High, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ because he was called to Christ. But now he says that this offering is done through evangelism, right? So we see incense as the prayer of the saints, 
the offering to support the work of missions, and the offering of bringing others to salvation. That's part of our act of worship as New Covenant believers. Romans 15, verse 16. Back to Malachi chapter 1. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that its food may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this? And you snored at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows at it, vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. We're going to end on a positive note, but this is not a positive note. This is heavy. This is the, the idea that what they're offering is not going to be accepted. They are not fulfilling their end of the deal. It's interesting the verbiage that's there that says, but you say, what weariness is this? You snort at it. Right? For those of us who are parents, we are instructing our young people to follow instructions and to serve us around the house, right? And, and there are ways that they serve where you see their joy in serving. And there are those times where you kind of get the snort, right? Like, <sighs> right? When God calls on us to serve, do we snort at it? Do we sometimes have that nudge from the Holy Spirit that we're supposed to reach out, from some, out to someone from the body and maybe that's a little bit of an inconvenience to our schedule? Maybe it's something we don't want to do. Do we, do we snort at it? Is it burdensome to us? Looking again at the prayers of the saints, is prayer a burden to us? Giving to missions, is that a burden to us? The work of evangelism, is that a burden to us? The good news in all of this is that God makes it clear that what he's looking for is sincere worshipers. He wants his people to come into his house, give him the fear and the honor that is due him, and to worship him for who he is. I promise you that as we go through this study, I'm going to get better and better at connecting this Old Testament to the New Covenant. And I was so excited to find this text that we're going to end with today. This is great joy. John chapter 4. Go with me to John chapter 4. This, this is incredible. And for those of us with Bibles with red letters, we'll see that our Lord Jesus Christ is connecting these dots for us. Chapter Four of the book of John, verse 19. Jesus finds himself with a Samaritan woman. And before I read it, it's important to know where Jesus is encountering the Samaritan woman. He's meeting her on, on a mountain, a place of worship, where the Samaritans went to worship God. Back in the Old Testament, an altar was built in this place, and it was used by the Samaritans as a place to do temple worship. You know that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom divided, and so the kingdom of the south had Jerusalem. The kingdom of the north, well, they had this mountain. And curiously enough, this mountain was where the Samaritan woman 
encounters Jesus. Here's the interchange. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, I love that. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Real worship isn't happening on this mountain. Real worship isn't happening in the temple. Real worship is happening where the Father calls to himself a people who will worship him. And praise God, that's done. All that Malachi was pointing to in this casual encounter between a Samaritan woman, Jesus explains it clearly. God is looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And praise God, we are those new covenant people. We understand all of this. And if we understand this, may what is repeated in Isaiah chapter 1 and Malachi chapter 1 not be applicable to us. When we come to the Lord's house, may it be an opportunity to worship him with all of our lives, beginning our weeks with worshiping him. This building, if I understand it right, was an ambulance bay before it was a church, right? May God never say, I wish they'd just park ambulances there, right? May this be a place where he is worshiped by his people in spirit and truth because he is the Christ, pointed to from the beginning and eagerly awaited yet again. Father God, we come before you and we, we thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken to us through the prophets, that you have pointed us in the direction of your son and that now we have the privilege of understanding the gospel through the rearview mirror. Lord God, we have an understanding that you have come and that you have called us and that you have redeemed us. God, we thank you that because of the new covenant, we can call you Father. But may we never do that flippantly. May we never do that without forgetting the honor that is due to your name. And God, we pray that this morning that we would be a church that worships you, that the things that we do, the ways that we serve one another, the ways that we give, and the way that we lead our lives would be a fragrant offering to you. May we be a church that worships you, and may your name be exalted above all else. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.